Today's episode is sponsored by Wild Realms. Humanity is forgotten. Nature has reclaimed the world. Now is the age of animals. Quest with animal allies into untamed lands. Defend your territory and be the first to establish a kingdom of animals within the Wild Realms. A set collection hand management game, Wild Realms is free to play online on Tabletop Simulator and Tabletopia. This medium weight multiplayer game plays in 60 minutes and launches October 7th on GameFound.com. Sign up by October 6th to be notified on launch and get a free legendary booster pack when you back the game. You can learn more at WildRealmsGame.com. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going behind the scenes. We're taking a look behind the curtain at Exploding Kittens the massively successful company that's created just some of the most enjoyable, engaging games that my kids love. And uh, the company has done incredibly well on Kickstarter. And we're talking to Carol Mertz, Senior Game Designer at Exploding Kittens. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Gabe. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, really excited to have you here. You know, we were talking just a moment ago before we started recording about how, you know, 99% of the time, the people I talk to are from small companies. It's either a one-person show or just a few people, and they're trying to figure it out, and they've, they've had some success here or there. I've not, I don't know that I've ever talked to anyone from a company that has had 65,000 backers in one campaign on Kickstarter. 200,000 <laughs> so, 200, backers, actually. It's still the most 000. backed Kickstarter of all time. Where am I getting 65,000? Uh, maybe from Throw Throw Burrito. I haven't, I'm not sure, but. Maybe that's uh, what it was. Exploding Kittens itself though, it had 200K. Yeah, 219, I think specifically. It's ridiculous. Goodness gracious. More, pe- more people than live in most towns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's wild. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely incredible. And so, yeah, just excited to, to see behind the scenes and understand a little bit more about how your company works and your process of bringing in designers to work there internally, but also for freelancing and, and projects. I know you guys are, are doing some really cool things as far as reaching out and bringing more designers in for lots of, of different things. You're expanding your catalog. You've got a lot of really interesting games coming out uh, on the market. It seems like constantly, it seems like there's new games yeah. that you guys are working on all the time and you got a, a good number of people that work over there. And so it's, it's such a, a different situation than most people are used to. And I feel like a lot of listeners are pretty interested in, well, how does that work? And, and how do you scale? And what does it look like to have a 200,000 person Kickstarter versus <laughs> my 2000 person Kickstarter? Because all of a sudden the problems are a little different. And if you make a dollar mistake on a 2000 person campaign, it's two grand. It's not a huge deal versus 200 grand on one of yours. And so it's just uh, you know something to, to, to think about and be aware of. And so Anyway, I'm excited to talk to you. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. 
Yeah. Um, so like you mentioned, my name's Carol Mertz. I have been designing games for over a decade at this point. I actually, uh, you know, I think you're probably used to hearing it at this point that I grew up loving games. You know, I built connections and relationships through games. And so I've always been inspired by them as an art form and a, a means of self-expression. Um, but it wasn't until uh, my undergrad and after undergrad when I fell into a community of folks who really encouraged exploring game design as a hobby. And so I started out um, doing uh, video game design with these friends and doing things like game jams and really just experimenting with it as, as a form of self-expression, like I mentioned. And I fell in love with it. It became my new favorite hobby. And so throughout the years, you know, I, I just kept making more and more games and getting deeper into it. And I, until I finally left my job as a web designer to pursue games full time about five years ago. Um, and then I went and pursued my master's in fine arts in game design. Um, and so I'm, I have just completely immersed myself in it over the last decade and I couldn't be happier. It's such a cool, it's such a cool career to be able to make fun for a living. Like who doesn't want to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Now, is that an MFA in like specifically board game design? Um, in in multidisciplinary game design. So I'm I consider myself a multidisciplinary designer. So I've done um, console video games, web games, installation and hardware games, as well as of course tabletop games. I published my first card game uh, in 2016, right around the same time that Exploding Kittens came out. Very cool. Where did you go to school? I went to uh, my MFA was from the NYU Game Center in New York. Awesome. Tell me a little more about that. That's super interesting because that's another yeah. thing a lot of people haven't done, haven't heard of, is that you can get a master's in game design. Just briefly tell me kind of over an overview because I'm sure a lot of people are like, wait, what? I can, I can go to school and get a degree in this stuff? Tell me about that. Yeah, it was it was phenomenal, honestly. Like it was two a two-year program and it was just a full immersion in game studies, which is like the idea of, you know, how do games interact with culture games history, building a literacy in the games that have come out through the millennia, you know, going back to games like, you know, Senate and Go and like learning how those things have impacted us now um, through basic, you know, basic game design. So we did, you know, like I said, video game design as well as board game design. Um, I also did a lot of uh, hardware and electronic design. So making custom controllers and really leaning into the experience. It was absolutely art school and it was absolutely game changing, so to speak, for my brain as far as how I how I viewed what it meant to be a game designer and the things that we can make and the experiences that we can make for our players. That's awesome. And it sounds so much more enjoyable than so many of the college courses that I sat through and it's like, what are we doing? And why am I here? But this, you're like <laughs> I'm here to create fun and put it out in the world for people to enjoy. And that's, that's just such a, a cool like angle to take with schooling. And uh, anyway, that's oh, yeah. awesome. Once you've found your passion, if you know, it, that's the point to go back for your master's is like, once you know that you're absolutely in love with something and you just want to immerse yourself in it for a couple of years and produce that kind of product or that kind of art for nothing but two years straight without having to think about the, you know, commercial implications of the things that you're making. It was, it was absolutely amazing. 
Yeah, that's so cool. All right, let's uh, let's talk about the origins of exploding kittens. Now, you weren't there at the beginning. You weren't one of the founders or anything. But uh, give me kind of the 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 lore. Give me the the story, the the origins of how this company came to be, all the way up to where it is now, which is one of the major publishers in the world. Yeah, absolutely. So, exploding kittens was the brainchild of Alan Lee, who was at the time an Xbox game designer. And uh, the Oatmeal, who is Matt Inman, um, as well as I, there was another uh, game designer, uh, Shane Small. So they all, the three of them came together uh, to come up with this game. And it, you know, went through iterations and they got really excited about it, especially once Matt joined and kind of put the, put the stamp of comedy on it with the Exploding Kittens name and that iconic art. And they decided to kickstart it and they figured it would be a fun weekend project. I think their original goal was something like 10K just so that they could do a small run and do a self-publishing, you know, like a little thing, get it out there. Um, and, And like we mentioned earlier, it ended up being the most backed Kickstarter ever with 219,000 backers and $8.7 million raised. And the vast majority of that obviously went into production, you know, the production costs and things. And it, it just, it became a company overnight unexpectedly for them. And so uh, ever since then they viewed tabletop games as this opportunity to make people interesting with each other, you know, like have allow people to have fun with each other and really reach audiences and, reach a reach a sense of fun that um, a lot of other forms of media just simply don't. Uh, and so so they they built this company. They've been releasing games ever since. Uh, this was back in 2015 when the Kickstarter happened. And so it's been six years now of just constantly coming up with new games, finding new people to work with, uh, coming up with like figuring out what it means to be a mass market publisher and really hitting the nail on the head, honestly. Yeah, it's such a cool story. And you you can tell that they weren't expecting that kind of success because they named the company after the first game. And I've seen that yeah. happen several times where people are like, hey, we just want to make a game. We're not trying to become board game publishers. And then it blows up and they're like, oh, I wish we would have come up maybe with a different name. Do you have any ideas if they talked about like, man, we could have named it this or that, but Exploding kittens is just kind of what what happened. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not privy to such information. Oh, man, it'd be interesting to see if, if that was really the plan the whole time, or if they were just yeah. so unexpected that the success was so unexpected that that's just all right. I guess we're exploding kittens, Inc. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really what it was. Is I know that it really caught them off guard that they were as successful as they were. They had no way of preparing for it and no idea what was going to happen. It yeah, just so sure. happened that they had built this team that, you know, was kind of perfect for making mass market games. Right. Well, I mean, the art is is so perfect for it. And then the, the, the audience as well. How big was the oatmeal at the time? Do you have any idea like how many people were already in that audience that just crossed over on the Kickstarter? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I do know that, you know, the oatmeal being involved had a huge impact on the, the reach that the Kickstarter had. But, you know, we've sold... 15 million games globally and i can tell you <laughs> his twitter the the oatmeal's twitter following is not quite that big <laughs> so we've we've been able to establish ourselves outside of him but i can absolutely say that matt's reach was a, a big part of the initial success oh absolutely and you guys have been able to just turn that 
that sm- small-ish audience, it's not massive, it's not like 100 million people, you've turned that audience and, and basically ran with it and turned it into something so much bigger in the game space, which is just amazing. I, I feel like a lot of people, even if given that opportunity, wouldn't have been able to figure it out in the way that, that y'all have. And so it's really impressive what has been built over the last few years. But at the same time, I want to make sure people are aware that they didn't just throw a little card game, a mass market card game up on Kickstarter and then have 200,000 backers. Like, no, there were years and years and years and years of building up an audience that then they said, hey, we got this game. You want to buy a game? I know you normally read the comic. We got a game. And people are like, heck yeah, I'll buy your game. And then that's that's kind of where it started. And so a lot, a lot of times people see massive success on Kickstarter and just don't realize that a lot of times years went into getting to a point where they could be that successful. And so I definitely want to highlight that, that y- y'all weren't in any way some kind of overnight success. It took years oh. to be an overnight success. Yeah, absolutely. And like Matt is just so good at marketing and at at building community and about just making this unique presence. And Alon too. I mean, Alon really, really cares about community. And and that was a big part of the success was that the Kickstarter was so much more focused on the community than the dollar amount. Um, You know, they were offering all these incredible incentives. Like once we get this many backers, we're going to do this ridiculous thing. Or once our backers send us you know, pictures of them dressed as Batman, (laughs) you know, like all these people wearing cat ears. These are, you know, community challenges just to get people excited and feeling like they were a part of the Kickstarter. And, you know, that, that really means a lot. And the fact that these guys have such a great intuition into what gets people excited and what gets people feeling like they're a part of the process is a huge, huge source of our success as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how you create raving fans that come back to buy any, anything else that you ever do. Even if it's not something that's quite for them, like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. They still buy it because they love you as a company. They love how you make them feel. They love the community that's come up around them. They probably made some friends. And so, yeah, marketing in that direction just makes so much sense in today's world. And yeah, y'all have done an incredible job of doing that. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what's next and how you continue. Because I know you got a lot of really cool games uh, coming up here soon, but let's, let's talk about you a little bit. Let's get your origin story with Exploding Kittens. Tell me how you got a job there. Like what was that process like? And, and all the way up to today and like kind of what you've been doing and what you're doing now, what you've worked on all that. Yeah, absolutely. I graduated uh, from NYU with my MFA in mid 2019. And at that point I kind of reached out to my networks and put out my feelers and said, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in working full-time in the industry. You know, let me know if you have any leads. And so a friend of mine reached out and put me in touch with Exploding Kittens uh, because at that time they had begun to expand their dev department and were looking for people who could help them with specific projects. And so we chatted and we figured out that it seemed like it was going to be a really great relationship. And they hired me on uh, in late 2019 to be a freelancer just to help out on a few different game projects. And uh, between 2019 and mid-2020, I just, I mean, it was my favorite freelance project that I had, you know, I was freelancing on a bunch of different other things. And I just really fell in love with the process and the community at EK and the creative environment. And so in mid 2020, when they asked me if I wanted to come on full time, I didn't even hesitate. I was like, yes, that sounds fantastic. Let's do this. Um, And so I've been there for a little over a year now uh, as a full time employee. And it's just been such a fantastic learning experience for me and an opportunity to really flex my, like I said, interdisciplinary design muscles, because 
there's also, you know, we're also working on digital games. We're also, you know, trying to trying to think of ways that we can really ex- expand outside of just, you know, a pigeonhole of being a tabletop game publisher. What else can we do? What other experiences can we create for our players? And so being able to apply those kinds of mindsets uh, th- from throughout my day to day essentially has been really, really incredible. Yeah, very cool. Give me a little behind the scenes look at your day to day, because a lot of times you know people say, oh, I want to work at a company, a major publisher. I want to be a game designer, but they don't want to deal with all the, the other stuff, the business stuff, the accounting, the customer service. Like they just want to go to work, design games and go home. But is it that simple? Is it as easy as like my, my normal day to day? If I'm working on game design, it's like, all right, I'm cutting out some cards and I might be talking to some people that I'm collaborating with. And like, is it similar to that or is it very different because you're in kind of this company structure? Just help me understand. Yeah. I mean, my role, I am a designer, so I am doing a lot of that. I'm doing prototyping. I am, you know, playtesting a ton. I'm organizing and leading design sessions where we talk about playtest results, figure out how to develop the game, how to really hone in on fun factor and figure out balance. Um, I'll also, I also do a lot of check-ins with our production team. I help put together bills of materials so that we figure out how much, you know, the game is going to cost to produce. Um, and it's important that the design team is a part of that process so that we can make sure that whatever components and materials we're using are really conducive to the player experience, that we're thinking about the player experience first and foremost. Um, you know, I also communicate with customer service whenever there's questions about how a particular game that I worked on might work. Um, a customer service will reach out to me and we'll have a discussion about how best to respond to maybe a difficult question about rules. Um, I also will write the rules. You know, I write the instructions, I get them approved, I revise them. Um, so there's a lot, but it is all very design focused. Gotcha. That, that's awesome. And it's, it's cool to hear that that is kind of how, how it works. And so tell me your schedule, though. Is it like, all right, Monday, we got a staff meeting and we're doing this. And Tuesday and Wednesday, those are our playtesting days. Like, do you have anything that's kind of scheduled out that you know this is what I do on these days? Yeah, I mean, we do we do have weekly scheduled check-in times for any given game. You know, for me, I'm working on generally between four and six games at a time. So I've got a bunch of projects that I'm juggling. Um, and so that means we have to schedule out time for those design sessions, for those playtesting sessions. And, you know, playtesting, you can't always do during the workday. So sometimes... You know, we have to schedule those outside of working hours so that we can actually get playtesters who who are not at work. Um, So there's, you know, I've got my biweekly weekend playtests. I've got my weekly check-ins with the dev team as a whole. I've got my weekly check-ins for my design sessions on any given project. We've got our production check-ins. You know, so yeah, we we definitely do have those meetings. Um, I'm not going to give you a full breakdown of my calendar, <laughs> but um, these are these are definitely absolutely things that are just like an established part of my week. You know, and the other fun thing is we do also do research uh, research sessions where we do get together and we research other mass market games that are out or other you know award winning spiel games things like that that. Um, we, we want to know what else is going on. So really, ultimately, that just means the development team is getting together, playing games together, and chatting about them. Very cool. All right. So you said 
you are you're often working on like four to six games at a time. Help me understand like your timelines and your scales on that kind of thing. Because, you know, as the owner of my own publishing company, if I want to, I could design a game today and put it on Kickstarter tomorrow. Now it wouldn't do very well. And that'd be a very bad idea, but I could, if I wanted to, because I am in control of the timeline. And so tell me how timelines work for y'all there as far as like, all right, we have a game. We want it to come out next year in Mm -hmm. May. And so you kind of work yourself back and you got all these other games going on at the same time. Tell me how you kind of keep it all figured out how you keep all the balls in the air juggling, but then, you know, hit your deadlines and, and all that. Like, how does that work in this bigger structure? Yeah, well, thankfully, we have an entire department dedicated to production. And so those are the folks that are really keeping us in check and making sure that we have an idea of this is the day. If we want to release, you know, let's say next summer, then that means that often you know, nearly a year in advance, we have to have our components completely locked in so that we can go through that full production process, make sure that we can get our samples, make sure that we can approve things and make sure that we have enough time, you know, in case of delays and things like that. So it's, it's a, it's usually, you know, it's dependent on the game for sure. It depends on what kinds of components are involved. It depends on what the game needs as far as development goes you know some some games stay in development for literal years because we know that there's something good there but we haven't been able to hone in and we don't want to release a game that's not great Um, but there are some games that only take a couple of months in development and then we move right into production but really we do uh, we do tend to work backwards from our anticipated release date then we know when we have to have our components locked and if we can't get our components locked at that point then we will, you know, figure out, do we need to shift the release date? How do we need to accommodate these kinds of, uh, these kinds of needs? Gotcha. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit, but actually kind of in the same realm, y'all still use Kickstarter and there's a lot of people online that say, Oh, you, you're a big company. You're like, you know, you and CMON and all these other game, uh, game companies that, that don't need the money. You don't need to go to Kickstarter, you know, and they get a little frustrated. I don't personally care. I think, it, Hey, just run your business. You know what I mean? Like if this is the, the way you want to go about it, go, go for it. And if you continue to get tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of backers, then obviously you're doing something right. But give me like the behind the scenes understanding of why y'all continue to use a platform like Kickstarter when some would say you don't have to anymore. Yeah. Well, I funny story. I actually joined after the Throw Throw Burrito Kickstarter, which was our last Kickstarter. So I haven't been with the company while we have a live Kickstarter. But I do know that... Um, we do it because we want to better connect with our community. It's a chance for us to incorporate our community into the development process. We can ask questions before we ever release the game. We can open that conversation up and really make the community as much of a part of the process as the company is, right? And that's so imperative. Like I said, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, our founding principle. The reason that the original... Uh, Kickstarter was such a success was all about the community. And that's what Kickstarter allows Exploding Kittens to do um, is just continue to connect and continue to build those people that are a part of our, uh, that are a part of our community. Yeah. That's what I figured is it's such a a great community builder. It's such a great way to bring in new fans, new raving fans. It's a great marketing arm. And so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And honestly, what a lot of people don't understand is that Exploding Kittens brought in a ridiculous number of new Kickstarter backers. Like people who had never heard of Kickstarter showed up because of Exploding Kittens. 
And big companies have this reach that are able to bring in people who are like, wait, wait, what? What is Kickstarter? I've never heard of this. Oh my goodness, there are so many things I can buy. And so it's such a, a good thing overall for these big companies to bring in backers that they're not actually sucking the money out of other campaigns. They're bringing in new people who will hopefully back more campaigns from other companies in the future. And so I feel like a lot of people just don't, they don't see it that way. They just see a big, you know, million dollar number and go, oh, well, that could have gone to these other folks. It's like, probably not. I don't, I don't think it works that way. It's not and a so, zero sum game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I don't know anyone who's bought one game. Like it's like eating one Pringle. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> You eat one, you eat the whole can, you know, you buy one game. You're like, I want more of these because this is a lot of fun. And so, yeah, it just, it just makes sense. It's not like buying a car where you do it once every five years, you know, you you buy a game. You're like, we need to get some more shelf space because we're about to get more of these. And so, yeah, it's anyway. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that, you know, situations like that, like you said, we're, we're bringing new audience into the game space. And in Kickstarter, most of the Kickstarter games that are up are hobby games. And to bring a mass market into Kickstarter to be able to look at the hobby games, I think it just opens up the opportunity for people to discover new things that they're going to love. There's nothing, I mean, it's just so exciting. There's nothing wrong with bringing in a, a brand new community and introducing them to the idea that, ah, oh, you can play new games. You don't have to keep playing the games that you've been playing for the past 10, 15, 20, 30 years. You can find new games that you're absolutely going to love. 100%. And I feel like, unfortunately, a lot of the negative comments that come out of this really stems from jealousy. It's, it's well, well, my campaign only had 500 backers. You know, I feel like a lot of it, even if people don't say that, um, I feel like a lot of it comes from that and just being frustrated because this game about cats that is not much more complicated than Uno that a lot of people in the hobby space are like, this is so dumb. It's not even fun. But yeah, it made made almost $9 million. And I feel like that's also a part of it is that people, they just, they don't see the bigger picture and they don't understand that it's, it's just different. And so I, th- I think all these things kind of come together and um, you know, people don't hate on things that aren't any good. You ever notice that like people, people aren't haters for stuff that's trash. <laughs> people are haters right. on unsuccessful things and, you know, people that are doing really, really well. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really a matter of like, all right, if, if I've got 10 haters right now, how, how do I get 20 by the end of the year? Because yeah. if, if I've got more then I'm doing something special and you guys are obviously doing some really cool, special things, but I want to keep talking a little bit more about what you do there at the company. Cause I know you, you design games. You've also developed games. Uh, we were talking about uh, recipes for disaster uh, earlier and, and kind of that process. Tell me about that. How, how does it work to one, you were working on an IP that already existed, that had done really, really well, already had a lot of success. And now you're coming in and going, okay, don't screw this up. How do I make it better? How do I make it more interesting and different angles? Tell me about that process. And just in general, the process of designing and developing games inside the company. Yeah, absolutely. So recipes for disaster. So the full name is exploding kittens recipes for disaster. And it is a it's essentially just a, a collection of all of our best cards, and it includes a handful of what we call recipes that are essentially the ingredients for unique decks for players to create different experiences that they've never played Exploding Kittens before. Um, and we knew coming into 2021 that we wanted to create a you know a a quintessential exploding kittens experience we didn't know what that looked like yet but alan came up with this idea of what if we make 
just separate decks with unique experiences and presented it to the dev team. And we were like, that's brilliant. Let's try. And he's like, we, it may not work. We may not be able to get this done in time. We may not be able to pull this off, but let's try. And so I led up the dev team in this intensely creative process for probably three or four weeks only of coming up with spreadsheets upon spreadsheets of distributions and probabilities and all these these ideas of like what if you know what if we had a deck that had only stealing or that really emphasizes stealing what if we have a deck that makes you feel like you're completely psychic and you know everything that's about to happen and we would you know create these experimental distributions play test them and either iterate on them or toss them out because they didn't work well and we really surprised ourselves throughout that process of there is so much more depth here than we ever could have anticipated. You know, you mentioned earlier that it's not much more complicated than Uno, right? But as, you know, just even as the developers who already worked for Exploding Kittens, who already knew Exploding Kittens intimately, we're, we started working on these recipes and we're realizing there is so much to this game that has been unexplored. And it was so exciting for me, especially because, you know, one of my game design goals is to create exciting and interesting and unique experiences for players. I'm very much an emotion first, experience first kind of designer. And so being able to say, what can we do to make our player feel psychic was one of the coolest processes. And so, you know, that that led into then also figuring out, okay, so these decks work. How do we make this process simple for the mass market? How do we design the box so that it's straightforward? How do we design the instructions so that it makes sense what a recipe is? Because this is not the hobby game market where there's a lot of patience and sitting down and being willing to read long instructions and being willing to assemble a deck from scratch. This is a mass market where you lose them in five minutes if you, know, if, if you don't have a complete understanding of what the game is. Um, and so it, it was super challenging, but super, super exciting to have that, um, to have that challenge fall in our laps like that. And, you know, seeing that Recipes for Disaster just released this past summer, uh, we clearly pulled it off. We made it happen. And I'm so, so proud of it. I think the other really cool thing about this particular game is that it gives players the ability to experience what I just described in that we include blank recipes. And that means that it can function as an exercise in game development for anyone. You know, you're sitting down to this, this box full of 121 cards and you as the player can become the developer by saying, okay, what kind of experience do I want? And how do I build that into a deck that works for me? And you can write down your recipe, you can write down the ingredients to make that deck, and you can come away with it with a brand new Exploding Kittens experience that you created, which I think is just so empowering and so exciting. And again, brings it back to the idea that it's all about the community. Yeah, that's so cool. And that also means that you y'all are, are doing some things that I love, which is helping to create more game designers, helping to bring more people into the creative side of things that they're not just experiencing games, but they're creating experiences and again you're, you're doing it on a massive scale and that's just excellent i think another thing that's really cool about this product very very smart 
is that you're allowing your audience to grow. You're, you're saying, hey, if you really loved exploding kittens, well, here's a way you can kind of take your, your experience to the next level. Here's some things you can do and, and this that, that and, and add all these things into it. And it's such a cool way for your audience to kind of move up in level, so to speak, of how they experience the game. And then you've got this really cool track where people just finding out about it can buy the original game, Exploding Kittens, play that, enjoy it. And then you say, hey, if you like that, I think you'll like this. And you kind of help them along in their customer journey, so to speak, of, of with your company. And all that does is build more trust, builds more community, brings more people in. And so it's, it's just super smart the way that you, you've handled this whole thing. Thank you. <laughs> I think so, too. I'm really excited about what we've done with this. All right, so tell me about the scale of these things. Uh, we were talking before the show, before we started recording, about you know if I make a mistake on a Kickstarter, it, maybe it's a dollar mistake, and I've got two thousand backers. Okay, that's two grand, not a big deal. It's not going to put me under. I'm not going to miss mortgage payments or anything like that. But if you make a mistake on a sixty thousand backer campaign, a two hundred thousand backer campaign, even if it's just a dollar, now we're talking about some real money. And so what are some things that y'all have to just be aware of, things that you're constantly thinking about when maybe it comes to production, marketing, shipping, any of those things as far as the scale goes? Because I feel like that's another thing people just don't have any insight into when you're talking about shipping hundreds of thousands, millions of games at this point, 15 million games you've shipped out. And so tell me about scale and, and just some of the things that people aren't aware of. Yeah. I mean, like I said, the big thing is making sure that we're budgeting plenty of time. Um, we, we give ourselves generally nearly a year from production to uh, fulfillment. And that's so important so that we can review all of, all of the components, make sure there are no mistakes. We have tons of people checking and double checking and triple checking throughout the entire process. You know, we've got, we've got conversations happening online. We've got samples going from from person to person to make sure that everybody has approved how the colors look and all of the text in the, you know, all the text in the instructions and all of the text on the back of the box and making sure that everything is up to snuff essentially. And that's, that's a big part of, you know, why we have so many people is that we have these redundancies. We have this opportunity to make sure that it's not just falling on one single person to make sure there are no mistakes made. That said, you know, problems can arise and things will happen. Um, and we are really fortunate that we are able to, you know, update rules and change things online and then also, up, you know, create new versions as we, you know, throughout the years, we've, we've made updated versions of the rules for the original Exploding Kittens. Every year when we reprint, we always refresh the rules and make sure that we're listening to our audience and listening to our community and making sure that these things are as clear as possible. And it's it's nice because we are producing so much all the time that we do have that opportunity to be constantly updating and constantly making the products the best they can be. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to products, how do y'all decide what you're going to do? Is this something where they say, hey, design team, do you get any ideas? And you can say, hey, I've got this game I've been working on, kind of my free time, and you can offer up an idea, or does it all come down you know, from the top, or is it all external and people submitting pitches and, and things like that? Tell me how y'all decide, okay, here's the next two years of products that are going to come out. Here's what we're working on. 
It's a little of everything that you just said, actually. So we have a lot of creative freedom as the as the staff at Exploding Kittens to pitch whatever we want, whenever we want to, right? And then there's also always going to be ideas coming down from leadership saying, hey, you know, it would be really cool is if we, you know, make a word game that doesn't force you to know all of the words. Um, hence, you know, a little wordy that Matt Inman designed and we developed internally. Um, these, these are the kinds of things that are, you know, kind of keeping our, keeping our internal design team churning. But in the meantime, we're always looking for external designers and external pitches and projects. And we have this submission form online that anybody can submit ideas to. Mass market ideas are always, always exciting to see and always super welcome. And if we ever find one through that submission form that we're really excited about, we think could work really well, you know, we sign a contract and we get to work developing it internally in partnership with the designer. So it, you know, can go from idea to shelf in, you know, <laughs> as long as it takes to make sure that it's really good. Um, but the big, the, the cornerstone of everything is just that, like I said earlier, we don't want to release anything that's not great, you know? And so we really do want to make sure that we're vetting these projects carefully and that they have full approval all the way through the company and that everybody's excited about it. Everybody's confident in it. And I think that that, that philosophy has really helped us to make sure that we, <laughs> we've never released a flop, you know, we've never, we've never had, um, We've never had a situation where we regret, you know, putting putting a game into production. And I think that that's a pretty incredible feat. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so tell me some of y'all's like guidelines or, or parameters so that you know this is a good game. No, actually, this is a great game. Here's how we know. Here's the checklist. Like, how do you how do you even know that? Yeah, the big thing that we keep in mind is we design games that make the people playing entertaining, not just games that are entertaining themselves. So these games that we're looking for are accessible to the mass market. They are easy to learn, easy to understand, and generally pretty quick to play because we're trying to appeal to a really, really wide audience of people who aren't necessarily uh, folks who consider themselves game players, right? Um, and we want the games to really bring out the best in our players and really bring out uh, an entertaining personality or an exciting moment. Like, you know, in Exploding Kittens, there's always these these moments of explosive, <laughs> explosive emotion because of unexpected gameplay behaviors. In our game, You've Got Crabs, we have an expansion where you just, you put on little crab mitts and you act really goofy and you let yourself be silly. And it, it's just entertaining as heck. And like you mentioned, I think, I, <laughs> the idea of throw, throw burrito, you know, tossing a burrito across the room and grandma having to dodge it or like, you know, trying to make sure that it gets knocked out of the way and doesn't knock down an expensive base. <laughs> it's just, it's all about, making memories and making um, really, really personable moments. Um, and that's a hard thing to, that's a hard thing to do, right? That's a hard thing to know whether or not your game hits that. And so we really try to think through like, could this game still be fun if nobody said anything the entire time? Would this game still be exciting? And would the people still feel completely connected to each other 
if, you know, they, they felt, they felt like they couldn't, you know, say anything or if they couldn't communicate or if they couldn't, um, you know, come up with the right answer at any given time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so for someone maybe thinking about submitting a game, submitting a pitch for, for a game that they think would do really well in your lineup, what would you tell them? Obviously, you tell them those things, right? Make sure it's mm-hmm. this kind of experience, that kind of thing. Anything else for someone just to be aware of? Yeah. I mean, the big thing is that we look for games that are, um, I would say, straightforward and deceptively simple. Like, we want games with depth, but that feel simple. We want games that feel familiar, but are doing something new. Because um, that's the recipe for success, right? Something that really feels like it belongs in your life, but that you've never experienced before. Um, so, you know, Exploding Kittens, for example, it's it's Russian roulette, but as a card game. And that, you know, we feel like those kinds of games that, why hasn't this existed before? This should have existed before. A dodgeball card game, for example, with Throw Throw Burrito. Why hasn't this existed before? We're looking for that click moment of something that, really can connect with an audience um, and make them feel, you know, like they already know what this game is before they've ever even started playing it. Um, But it gives them a brand new experience that they've never had. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So you mentioned a few times how you have this incredible design team and you now at this point have several that are internal and external. Tell me about kind of the the culture of design. Uh, I think one of the the phrases that was brought up in our email exchanges back and forth is that y'all are trying to create this haven for game designers, like this place where people can come in and just flex their creative muscles and and have a lot of fun creating amazing games, amazing products. So tell me a little bit more about that and, and what you're trying to do going forward with this game design team, both internally with the company and then also external freelancers. Yeah, our game design team is frankly incredible. (laughs) Uh, We've got four staff designers and half of us are women. And, uh, you know, we've got a handful of parents and we've got folks from, you know, all kinds of backgrounds and identities. And it, it makes for this incredibly creative environment where we can contribute our experiences to the projects that we're working on in such a way that we know that we're going to be expanding our audience. And so we're also, you know, we're building our external designers, looking for folks who have these unique experiences, who can contribute ideas that um, we, we wouldn't be able to come up with internally. Um, we've worked with uh, over a dozen external designers at this point, and we've released games in partnership with Brian Spence to produce Throw Throw Burrito and Wolfgang Warsh and Mikhail Bertelson and being able to bring their experiences into our kind of creative, you know, like our creative pressure cooker (laughs) environment has, has given us the opportunity to come up with, like I said, games that just feel like, why didn't this exist before? And games that feel so good to play and so fun and like they just belong on the retail shelf. So yeah, it's really exciting to us to be, to be building this environment that is so, um, I mean, frankly, it's very inclusive. It's, it's exciting to work in this environment where we're really celebrating unique approaches and unique experiences. And it's an opportunity for us to, I think, expand our audience dramatically because we're able to come at design with inclusivity 
at the forefront of design. It's like integrated into the design process. So we're trying to make our games accessible to audiences that may not have been reached otherwise. If, if you know, like a single person was designing or, you know, if it was just like tradition, like the idea of the traditional designer designing for the traditional audience, we're aiming for this approach that allows us to really stretch out and really accommodate as many players as we possibly can by incorporating those experiences into the design process. Yeah, for sure. And there's just so much value of having diversity of thought, diversity of opinion, diversity of, of the way people see the world. And I'm actually reminded of recently, I'm, so I've been working on a game that's it's kind of a Pokemon style game. And uh, I've got a friend here in Honduras, and he's not a game designer by any stretch. He's not a game developer. He likes board games well enough, but he's, you know, he's nowhere he's nowhere near uh having the struggle of like the curse of knowledge like i have right so i've been doing this for a while and so the curse of knowledge is, is a real thing kind of being locked in is like well, this is how we do things and so i will often say hey i've got this idea and and he's a huge huge pokemon fan has played them all mm-hmm. over and over and over. he's caught them all at this point he's, he's catched them all and so i'll ask him i was like hey i've got this idea and what do you think and he'll go well have you thought about it from this angle i was like why would i do it from that angle i'm a board game to-. yeah that's a really good idea and, and so it's, he's seeing things from angles that I'm, I'm I'm not seeing because I come at it with a certain experience level, a certain perspective, certain angle, certain, you know, over the last handful of years of designing games, this is kind of what I bring. He's coming from a totally different angle. And he's like, well, what about this? It's like, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's smart. I will, I'll work on that. <laughs> so it's yeah. so important to have people that can just come see things with new eyes and have different experiences and different, you know, different thoughts. Um, one of my favorite stories actually is um, when I when I took over uh, writing the rules for Exploding Kittens recipe for recipes for disaster. Um, I, it was the first time that anyone who was not Alan was writing rules for Exploding Kittens, right? So no, Alan, no being, there, huh? right? Alan <laughs> being you know the person who came up with the game five years prior, um, like had been, you know, updating these rules and carefully curating these rules over the last five years and did a fantastic job. And I'm sitting here reading through the rules and I'm realizing one of the, um, one of the things in the, in the setup for picking a player to go first, one of the potential, you know, traits that you could pick to allow somebody to go first was most impressive beard. And I was like, that means I would never be able to go first. (laughs) And so I was like, can we, can we change this? And they were like, oh, we never even thought about that. We never thought about the fact that most impressive beard could, uh, you know, limit, (laughs) limit the, the kind of player who could go first in this, in this instance. And obviously there were other potential ways that you could pick somebody to go first, um, like shortest spleen, which is still my favorite method of selection. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we got, we got to change most impressive beard to most excited to go first because that's usually me. <laughs> so it was really just a plan for you to be able to go first is all this really. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> if I've got my fingers in the rules, I get to, you know, I get to make, <laughs> I get to make it, uh, suit me however I like. That it's makes that, so much sense different now. experience. No, I get it now. And that's why there's that tiebreaker that says at the end of it, if, if the game is tied, whoever's named Carol wins. And so yes, exactly. Yeah, that's it, definitely in the rules. Sense. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's keep talking about working for your company, whether it's freelance or internal, whatever. Let's say a year from now, y'all are going to post online that you have a job opening for a game designer position. Mm -hmm. What can I be doing over this next year to set myself up for success, to be able to put in a resume, to be able to put in an application that, that you will, y'all will look at and go, wow, this, this is someone we need to hire. They've got experience here. They know how to use this type of software. They, they've got, you know, a background, this, that, and the other. What can I be doing over the next year to set myself up to be an impressive potential candidate for a company like Exploding Kittens? That's a great question. Um, the big thing to keep in mind is it's, it's, always going to be helpful to have experience publishing games, whether it's working with a publisher or self-publishing, having the experience of having gone through the process is so, so important to us because it means you're going to be able to communicate with everybody throughout the pipeline. Um, there's also the you know idea that we're looking for people who are capable of designing the kinds of games that we design. So you know having things in your portfolio of work that show that you're thinking about um, mass market game design, uh, you know fast to learn, quick to play, those are really important to us. And so to be able to prove that that's in your wheelhouse and that's something that you're passionate about is definitely going to be an important part of that application process. Beyond that, you know, having skills in the Adobe suite, you know, being able to use Illustrator to, you know, create mock-up uh, prototypes and InDesign to make, you know, the your sheet of cards that you can just instantly import. Um, we've also been using a lot of tabletop simulators. So experience with, you know, standard tools that, uh, you know, that a lot of folks use to to be able to prototype quickly and test quickly. Um, all of that all of that stuff is going to add up and be a huge help. Um, even little things like knowing how to use a 3D printer, knowing how to use a Glowforge, these are all things that come into play um, on top of the idea of being, being well aware of what the market looks like, knowing what kinds of games are on shelves, what things um, are you know, key comparators to our games. That all also really helps because it means we know that you're paying attention. We know that you have an idea of the kinds of projects that we work on and the kinds of projects that we're looking to work on. Yeah, I would definitely suggest someone play a lot of your, all of your games, play all yeah. of your games multiple times, have an understanding of, of what y'all are looking for. Uh, but like you said, experience is really the thing and having experience in doing this kind of work, not just that you've read a bunch of blog posts or you listen to a bunch of the board games download podcast, but you actually have done some things. And I feel like that's one of the things that holds a lot of people back. They, they spend a lot of time, quote unquote, researching and not actually getting in there and doing anything. And so it's all theory. It's all, well, mm -hmm. I heard someone that did it this way and I read this and I, you know, the podcast said that. But you got to do it. You got to get out there. And I feel like a lot of times people, they say, oh, I'm learning, I'm researching, but really they're, but really they're just procrastinating. They, they just don't have it in them quite yet to maybe take the leap, to take the risk of going out there and, and trying to do something, even if it's just on a freelance level or, or something very, very small, a, a $500 Kickstarter where they're just trying to print 20 copies of a game, you know, anything like that. And so that would be my suggestion to anybody listening to this. If you want to make this a real thing and you want to work for a company like this, or you want to get into the industry in some way, experience is paramount. And so what can you do right now to set yourself up 
for gaining that experience. Because even if you go into doing this kind of thing and you, and you fail, like you try to run a Kickstarter and you don't get any backers. Okay, you just learned a heck of a lot more than you would have just by reading blog posts and listening to podcasts. And so I just want to encourage anybody listening to this, do, do something, do anything. Take one step, whatever that is, could be the smallest step in the world, but get off the couch and go do anything because that's going to set you up for success down the road. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so would you have any other advice or, or anything that would kind of help uh, people be encouraged down this path? Yeah. I mean, that game design idea, put it down on paper, prototype it, put it in front of people, play test the heck out of it, you know, iterate on it, listen to your play testers, notice what they're doing right and wrong and make that game your dream game, <laughs> you know, make that game the best game it can be. And see what you can do with it, whether that's self-publishing, whether that's submitting it to a publisher like us, um, you know, figure out, figure out what the next step is for yourself. What is the most comfortable for you? Um, and what's realistic for you. And even just getting the experience submitting, you know, the worst thing that someone's going to say is no, or not respond at all. Right. Like, (laughs) that's the worst thing that can happen if you submit your idea. And that's not that bad. So put yourself out there, let yourself try and gain the experience of reaching out because, you know, you might wind up having a conversation. You might wind up being able to play it live with, you know, the scouts from the company. You might be able to sign a contract and get it published. And, you know, that could be a totally life-changing experience for you at the very least it's going to give you a completely new perspective and a new outlook and new experience as far as designing uh, new projects. Yeah, absolutely. Or create a print and play file and just put it out there for other people to print off and cut out and, and play it and give you a little bit of feedback. I mean, that community, and that, that's not any money, really. You can go find stock images and, and use icons, or whatever. You don't have to spend a bunch of money, but just putting things out into the world it's where it all starts. I mean, this whole podcast, this, we're like 250 something episodes in at this point. And it all started because I reached out to 10 people that I thought would say no. I didn't think a single person I reached out to in the, the first for the first 10 episodes would say yes. And eight of them said yes. And it was like, whoa, okay, that's that was unexpected. Uh, okay, okay, now I have to record eight podcasts because I just reached out to these people and eight of them said yes. So, okay, I guess, I guess we're doing this. And that's where it started. Like I had no expectation that this was going to be a real thing. It was just an idea. And it's like, okay, this is cool. I've learned a good bit about it. I understand. I've got a good microphone. I understand the software, all these things. Now let's do it. Let's put some emails, emails out into the world. And eight out of 10 people said, yes. It's like, wow. Okay, let's go. (laughs) And so that's my encouragement to anyone listening to this. Just put some stuff out into the world. Because a lot of times when you're putting out good things for good reasons, the universe recognizes that and it smiles on you. And so just, uh, just, just do it. Just give it a shot. Now, Carol, let me ask you a let me ask you about creating a an environment that is conducive for game design. I know y'all have this really awesome team you've been talking about. Tell me, tell me more as far as like, what what can I do? What can a designer do to set themselves up for success to be able to come up with really cool ideas that work really well in the marketplace? Like, what do y'all do? Do you have a certain kind of coffee that you serve every morning? Like, what do, what do you do? What is, what's behind the scenes as far as creating this really good environment? It really is about trying to allow for creativity in a way that like mistakes are okay. You know, experimenting and screwing up is okay. We don't 
we don't put a lot of pressure on early ideas. We just want to come up with ideas and see how well it works. Like, what if we, you know, made a silly game about X, Y, or Z? Let's see what that might look like. Oh, it's terrible? Okay, let's not pursue it anymore. But oh, maybe it's the next best thing. And we just, we really want to make sure that um, the people on our dev team and our external designers feel empowered to experiment and to explore um, and and give themselves the chance to come up with something that, you know, we wouldn't be able to in our own little bubble. Like we do collaborate a lot. We listen to feedback from each other a lot. You know, we are, we are absolutely open with one another when we think that, you know, there could be an opportunity over here that you may not have even noticed. Okay, cool. Let's pursue that. Oh, wow. That's our next big game. You know, and it's, it's about listening to each other. It's about creating a space where failure is okay. And it's about also encouraging experimentation and encouraging the idea that like, we don't have to do what's already been done. In fact, everything that we've created pushes the boundaries in some way. And that's really special and that's really important. And it's really just imperative to keep in mind as creators uh, at a company like Exploding Kittens, where we're trying to, we're, we're trying to hit the mass market, but also trying to make game-changing games that change the way that people buy game products. Um, and that's, it's really exciting to think about and it's really inspiring to a lot of our team and being able to do that, knowing that if we mess up, that's okay. We're not going to like, it's nobody's going to hold it against us. That's so, so important to the process at EK. Yeah. hundred percent. The ability to not overjudge yourself, like definitely hold yourself accountable and, and be honest and, and real with yourself and have people around you that can be honest and real with you and all that, but to not just dwell on mistakes, dwell on failures, just, just dwell on all the negativity. It is a superpower. And if, if a creative person can develop that and really flex that muscle and get to the place where they just don't overjudge, now you're going to judge your work just naturally because that's, that's how it is, but to not overjudge it and to not just live in that world. Um, I'm reminded, so many years ago, I went uh, on a mission trip to Egypt and we were doing some different things over there, working in different ministries and churches and, and some cool stuff. And one of the things uh, we got to do was go see a place called the City of the Dead. And the City of the Dead is basically the tombs and the, the cemetery out there and uh, people now live there. And so there's like a million people that live amongst the tombs. They're kind of homeless, but they've built like this little, not little, it's huge, but this community of, of shacks and huts and, and tents and all these kind of things thrown together. And, and they've, they've run electricity out to it and they've run water out to it. And they've got this like actual community there, but it's built among the tombs. It's built among the cemeteries, among, among the dead, city of the dead. And it's kind of an interesting situation because if you go into somebody's you know, house, for lack of a better word, um, you know, they've got a normal space like you might expect. Here's a little kitchen area. Here's where we sit down. Here's where we sleep and things like that. But at the same time, there's uh, a tomb there. They, they may, maybe they've thrown like a, a tablecloth over it and that's where they eat dinner. But their dining room table is basically a tomb and there's a dead person inside. And they, they just learn, have learned to live with it and they just deal with it. This is life that we live among the dead. And it's just a very interesting situation. And I, once I left Egypt, I was thinking more about that scenario. And I was thinking about how many people live that life just in metaphor. How many times do, do we fail? Do things not go well? 
Do they not turn out the way we hoped or expected? And we just throw a, a tablecloth on it. We, we don't really deal with it. We just, we just live with it. And, and our own lives become city, a city of the dead. And so anybody listen to this, that you have failed, you struggled, things aren't turning out the way you'd hoped. Uh, you, you get, you've got your YouTube channel that has 10 subscribers and you, you'd hoped you'd have a million by now. Like whatever it is, like you, you've worked on 100 games and none of them have been published at this point. I just want to encourage you, don't just live with it. Don't just throw a dining room table, uh, tablecloth over it. Keep going. Like fight your butt off to, to get out there and just keep going. Don't, don't just accept it and be like, Oh, well, this is my life. You know, I'm just going to have to live with this and deal with it. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. And I want to encourage you to get around people that will encourage you. Uh, Cause a lot of times people that live in the city of the dead are very discouraging. They don't want to see anybody leave that place. And they, if you're living, you know, if I'm living with the dead, I want you to live with the dead too. That way I don't feel bad. And so I want to encourage you just do whatever it takes to uh, get the tomb out of your house. You know, I've heard of a lot of writers or game designers, or whatever. They'll, they'll put their failures on the wall as, as as almost like little monuments, like little. I don't I don't get that. Throw it away. Get rid of it. it it's over. It's 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 done. Move forward. And so, I don't know who needs to hear this. This is some some advice I needed to hear uh, a while back. And so I just want to I want to share that with y'all. Is uh, don't don't just live in the city of the dead. Move on. Move mm-hmm. forward. Go do something else. And uh, I don't know, Carol, if you have anything to, to kind of follow up with that and, and maybe encourage folks like that as well. Yeah, I mean. I- I think that it's also really important to allow yourself to reflect on and learn from your failures. You know, it is important to move on from them and say, okay, that's done. What's the next thing? But also give yourself the opportunity to understand why a project may not have done well. What can I learn from this? How can I apply that to my next project? And how can I improve from this? And that's what we do also. You know, that's part of what makes our creative process so great is that when we toss out an idea, we then have a clearer understanding of what we're looking for. Like, why didn't that work? Okay, so what worked about that? How can we apply what worked to the next thing that we work on? How can we avoid the thing that made that game not fun or not work? And how can we make sure that we avoid that in the future with other projects? So it's important not to not to just like discard you know, your failures entirely. It is important to move on from them, but it is important to absolutely allow them to be lessons learned oh yeah 100 percent. learn from it and then play the next play learn from it play the next yeah. play you know, oh that was oh that was a mistake i'm not gonna do that again then play the next play a lot of times we, we just get in this loop of oh, i'm not gonna do that again that was a mistake and and the next day it's like yeah i'm not gonna do that again and maybe you know like but no just learn from it and then go because otherwise you, you spend so much time like your brain just gets locked in and, and spend so many cycles on things that don't even matter that, that happened in the past learn from it play the next play Okay, this has been excellent. Do you have any closing thoughts? Any any lasting words you want to leave people with to, to encourage them or, or kind of just did that a little bit, but any anything else you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I <laughs> I think we covered a lot of, you know, what I was hoping to share, but I do want to encourage everybody who's listening, who's a designer, if you like the work that we're doing, if you like the idea of reaching mass market audiences, please, like I said, give yourself a chance and, you know, submit your ideas to us. We, we're excited to work with new people. We're excited to find new projects to potentially, you know, put into retail. So um, don't, you know, don't get down on yourself. Don't be afraid of reaching out to publishers. Give yourself the chance uh, because we are trying to build a, a bigger community of designers. We are looking for opportunities to, to really reach, you know, new ideas and, and find new, new projects and things like that, which is 
exciting for everybody involved, I think. Um, and yeah, just, just look for ways that you can, you know, continue pushing yourself and continue growing. And I think <laughs> that's, uh, I think that's kind of the moral of this conversation, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, where can people submit ideas? Is it part of the Exploding Kitten, uh, Kittens website or, or where? Yeah, so we just redesigned the Exploding Kittens website. So I think right now the easiest way to get to it is go to explodingkittens.com. And then if you click on the FAQ, the very first question is, can I submit my game? And there's a link to the game submission uh, right from that FAQ. So that'll be, I think, the easiest way to get to it. And that goes into our database and we take a look at it. And if we can, we play it and we let you know. Awesome. Well, Carol. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with so many cool things that I know you're working on at Exploding Kittens and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much, Gabe. This was great. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting? <laughs>